Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, I pray that the assurance of your love and Jesus' love for even sinners like us would give us a sense of peace right now, that we would recall that you demonstrated your own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I pray that that would give each and every one of us uh, a heart of, of humility and peace and openness to your word as we're about to proclaim it. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the offertory we just heard. Thank you for fairest Lord Jesus, the one and only Savior who can rescue people from their sins. And we commit this time to you now in his precious and strong name. Amen. Well, there's a pastor who recounted a story of a, a lady who was a missionary in Africa back in the 1950s. And she was quite appalled when she saw the native children at recess, not running around and playing, but rather hunting mice and grasshoppers. They would impale them on a stick and then roast and eat them. When she inquired as to why the children were so hungry, she learned that in that particular culture, the men ate their fill first, followed by the women. And if anything was left, the children then could eat. The children were considered the least important in that society. And this is very unlike Jesus. As we'll see today, he considered children important enough to give them his time and his individual blessing. He wants us to learn from children what it means to believe in him. And he would have us value children and have us be used of God to lead them to faith in him. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 10. We're going to continue in this wonderful gospel. Our verses are verses 13 through 16. And I've titled our sermon today, Children and the Kingdom of God. And I want us to see that Jesus' blessing of children here teaches us important lessons about service, about salvation, and about our Savior. Okay, I'll say those again uh, when we get to it, but just keep that in mind as we read our passage this morning from Mark chapter 10. It's four verses, so if you could, please stand with me. But if not, we understand. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16 is our text. And this is the word of God. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Please be seated. Once again, Jesus' blessing of children in our text in Mark chapter 10 this morning teaches us important lessons about service, salvation, and the Savior. And so the way we're going to do it in our uh, outline points is backwards. We're going to go Savior, and then salvation, 
and then service. Okay, so we're going to learn about our wonderful, merciful Savior and His character. We're going to look into what He teaches, learn what He teaches about salvation, and then we're going to apply that with service. So the first point here is simply our Savior. And verse 13 and 14 once again says, They were bringing children to Him so that He might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, He was indignant. He tells them, Permit the children to come to Me. Do not hinder them. And so that... That gives us the context of this, this culture, this time. We want to understand what the perspective towards children in the first century was and not impose our 21st century perspective on, on children onto the text in what's happening here 2,000 years ago. Okay? For us, what Jesus did might seem normal. It seems like maybe what most sensible adults today would do if we were in that situation. We see children, for the most part, as precious. We value them greatly, as we should. Of course, in our country today and in the world, um, in the case of unborn children, uh, the polar opposite is true. Right? They are devalued and they are dehumanized. But generally, our culture still values children and babies and young ones once they're born. They are worth our time and attention. But in Jesus' day, children were not seen like that. They were not particularly special or endearing in society, except to their parents like these ones who are bringing them to Jesus for a blessing. That culture's general perspective on children was different from ours. Okay, they didn't have an especially high view of children. As I mentioned previously, if you recall from Mark chapter 9, uh, just a chapter ago, but uh, some months ago now, commentators have noted that Jewish rabbis considered it a waste of time to teach the Torah to children under 12. From spiritual leaders on down, a child was deemed an insignificant, weak member of society. Childhood was like this, this necessary season before becoming an adult. So this attitude was reflected in the disciples shooing away of these parents and, and young ones here in Mark chapter 10. And by the way, the parallel passage in Luke is Luke chapter 18. And in Luke 18, 15... It says babies. It says babies there in, instead of children. Matthew 19 is children just like it is here in Mark 10, meaning young children, toddlers. So it's likely that these moms and dads were bringing their infants and very young children to Jesus that he might bless them, he might pray for them. It was customary for parents to do this, to bring their youngins to, to a rabbi for blessing. So here they come, one after another, one after another, one after another, but the disciples rebuked them. Okay, the twelve apparently thought this was a waste of time. Okay, not seeing these toddlers as worthy of the Lord's attention. Okay, they pretty much missed the whole point of Mark 9. Okay, if you remember, uh, look back there for just a, just a second. Mark 9.36. It says, taking a child, and this is after Jesus tells them, if anyone wants to be first, the, the, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then verse 36 Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, the twelve, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And the point being, if the disciples want to be truly great, they want to be first, they need to humble themselves and be willing to serve and welcome all people. 
Okay, bringing this child in is like a demonstration of that. Even seemingly insignificant ones like this young toddler that Jesus has in his arms. Okay, serving those who haven't accomplished anything of note, those who cannot add to your resume or to your list of achievements. They don't do anything for your social status or your prestige amongst your, your peers. So what, what I want us to see is that Jesus' response to the 12 here in Mark chapter 10, it reveals his unique and wonderful character. It's, again, he's out of step with the overall Jewish culture and mindset. When he saw the 12 telling these parents and children basically to just go away, they're rebuking the parents, right, and the children. Jesus doesn't nod in approval like, yes, guys, you're right. You're doing the right thing here. These, these little ones are not worthy of my time. I got way more important things to, to think about here. Hey, no, Jesus doesn't do that. Rather, he gets angry with the 12. That's what that word indignant means, angry. It's a righteous, holy anger. Similar to when he cleanses the temple hey, two times in his ministry, in the beginning, at the end, right? Overturning tables, clearing the, the place out. Like also when he condemns the Pharisees throughout his ministry and teaching, but especially towards the end, you remember Matthew 24, verse 13, uh, and on, when he woes them, 24, 13, and Matthew says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And it's like when he cast out wicked demons from people. Okay, for example, Mark 1, 25, in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus rebuked him, the demon, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Also, Mark 9, 25. So this is Jesus' righteous anger being displayed. Back here in Mark chapter 10, it was an intense displeasure, displeasure he showed toward his 12 disciples. His heart was grieved. His anger was aroused. He became indignant at their actions and attitudes, which he judged to be wrong. So he reproves them in a strongly corrective manner. He tells them with a, a double imperative. He doesn't just tell them, let them come. He doesn't just say, hey, stop doing that. He says, permit them to come and stop stopping them. <laughs> stop doing that. So Jesus' attitude stands in stark contrast to the disciples and to the overall culture around him. And his words of indignation to them, they're clear. Either they're forceful. They're firm. His anger, once again, is holy. It's perfect. Perhaps even a bit stinging for the disciples hey, as they're in front of all these people. Hey, it's like when he tells Peter, right, get behind me, Satan. Hey, that must have stung a, a bit. Look at verse 16. Hey, also, just in that very moment, just a few moments later, verse 16, he says, it says, he took them, hey, these little babies, these toddlers, he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. What, am I, what do I mean when I say the character of Jesus, the wonderful, unique character of Jesus? And what tender care and genuine affection is juxtaposed here and with this sharp rebuke of these 12 grown-ups who should have known better, right? And this is a lesson we can learn about our Savior. He's the epitome of what godly, masculine strength looks like. And he's strong, yet sensitive. He's angry, yet he's in complete self-control. He's displeased, 
Yet he demonstrates with his teaching and tenderness what real manly strength is. And his attention and affection towards children, folks, was not a sign of hippiness or wimpiness or weakness. Nor was his indignation towards the twelve, okay, or the Pharisees, or the scribes, or the demons, or whoever else, that was not a sign of moodiness, or grumpiness, or bad temper. Rather, these characteristics show us what a man of great meekness Jesus was. Okay, proving John's wonderful description of him, which is one of my favorite in all of Scripture, John 1.14, right? He was full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. It says something about our Savior that parents brought their children to him and that children approached him and loved him and that he welcomed and loved children. Jesus was not a mean, sour man. After all, children don't just come to and, and love mean, sour men, do they? You know, a grumpy, busy rabbi, he doesn't take time for kids, doesn't take them in his arms, but our Savior does. He takes time. He embraces them. He holds, he holds them in the, in the crook of his arm, holds them close, lays his hands on them, bestows fervent blessing upon them. Hey, what, what a touching picture of Jesus' special love and care for the little ones. I like what Pastor Ray Pritchard says here. Quote, Jesus is the little child's best friend. His blessing has brought its benediction wherever his name has been heard. Christianity has always been the religion that safeguarded the rights of children. Wherever the gospel goes, it honors families, it ennobles motherhood, it protects and preserves the place of children. Where Christ is known and trusted and followed and where his example is the model, their infancy is sacred and children are safe, end quote. Just a quick uh, implication and application here. Uh, from this point, and we, and maybe especially us men, but I'll extend that to, to all of us, we have much to learn from our Savior as, as we get a glimpse of his gentle strength, okay, even in this brief passage. Perfect, godly, manly holiness we see okay, in the form of heated ire toward his disciples and simultaneously with the warm invitation of these young babies and children. Okay, fairest Lord Jesus. He is a, a mighty, merciful Savior. May we emulate him in his, in his character. And this is something that we can learn about our Savior and appreciate and love. Which leads us to our second point, what Jesus is teaching. Okay, the lesson that he's teaching uh, through this, this opportunity. And salvation so the second part of verse 14, Jesus says, Permit them, do not hinder them. Then he says, For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. He's leading up to something here. And Jesus always teaching, always shepherding, always pointing to heaven. His character is impeccable. His doctrine is impenetrable. He uses this opportunity to teach a lesson about salvation. And first, he gives his reason why the twelve should allow the children to come to him. He's saying why they should not hinder them. 
4, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So it's because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that is the realm of God's rule. We might just say heaven. We might just say eternal life. We might just say salvation. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And um, as a brief footnote here, it's a, it was a bit surprising to learn that some well-regarded theologians who I respect and learn from, okay, even including uh, John Calvin, consider this passage, and they're adding it with other passages, uh, they consider it as part of their basis for believing in the practice of infant baptism, okay, also known as pedo-baptism. Okay, their rationale is that Jesus considered these little babies and toddlers who were being brought to him as already belonging in the kingdom, as being even now, as they put it, members of his church, so to speak. And they say that the Lord is not describing or viewing them as these little, little heathens who are living outside of God's kingdom and salvation. Rather, the kingdom belongs to such as these. And one of these men, who I learn a great deal from, um, he's a covenant theolog- theologian like Calvin, uh, William Hendrickson. He says, quote, Since the little children and babies of believers belong to God's church and to his covenant, then baptism, which is the sign and seal of such belonging, should not be withheld from them. So he's saying that infants should be baptized. Okay? In later years, after an infant is baptized, through parental and church instruction, applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, the divine blessing received earlier through that baptism becomes a mighty incentive to wholehearted personal surrender to Christ, end quote. Okay, so they're not teaching baptism uh, earns salvation, but they're teaching that, that babies and, and young ones should be baptized. So this is how many who adhere to covenant theology interpret this passage. And I might push back some, as much as I respect all of those men. Um, and I might argue that this is a possible example of proof texting that uh, I mentioned last Sunday. A proof texting is when one uses scripture in an isolated, out-of-context way um, to support a position that one is holding to. So you believe a certain thing, and then you try to take these verses and, and make them support what you want. I don't think this is a great text to support infant baptism. Okay, So end of that footnote. But the important question then is, what does Jesus mean when he tells the twelve that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these? Right? Again, the context is that the twelve are wanting to keep these these young ones away from the Savior, away from the King. He says, no, let them come. Let them come. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as them. So disciples think that they are unimportant, insignificant, they are of no matter. But Jesus is saying, no, no, they are important. They are significant. They do matter greatly. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And so he's not saying that they the kingdom of God belongs to children per se, but to those like children, like these young babes, okay, those who are unaccomplished, unimpressive, again, seemingly insignificant ones are the ones that the kingdom of God is made of. Okay, and, and with, that, with that, there's a certain innocence about these youngsters, okay, a certain purity And by analogy, that's the case with those who are spiritually born again into the kingdom. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
What does Paul say? He says there's, there's not many mighty, there's not many noble, there's not many wise. I believe that's what such as these refers to in context here. And what Jesus solemnly says next, it seems to inter- interpret and expand on that interpretation. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, verse 15, okay, amen lego, I, I solemnly say to you, okay, I assure you, okay, this is one out of 14 times in the Gospel of Mark that, that Jesus um, begins a, a statement with this, and it means that something very important is coming up. Okay, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Matthew 18, verse 3 says something similar. Truly I say to you, listen, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's, that's pretty stunning for the 12 to hear, isn't it? Not only was Jesus sternly, yet gently, correcting them, but his further revelation here is that no one enters heaven unless he receives it like a child. It become like a child, Matthew 18. So the million-dollar question is, what does receive the kingdom of God like a child mean? Well, the answer is, as a child receives it. As a child receives it. If you don't receive the kingdom of God, that is, believe in the gospel, believe in God, believe in Jesus, as a child does, you will not enter heaven at all. You won't get into heaven unless you receive and believe the gospel like a child. It's as simple and straightforward and direct as I can put it. But that does lead to another thought, right? How does a child or a a young toddler tend to believe? Well, we've already mentioned that there's, there's no merit. There's no sense of accomplishment. There's nothing achieved that a little kid can come to God with. So he's completely dependent Also, children tend to be without pretensions, claiming no personal rights. Children tend to be trusting, right? This is why we have to teach them not to talk to strangers. They have a a spirit of receptivity, an attitude of faith, a certain innocence and guilelessness about them. Obviously, if we know the Bible, we understand that children and even babies are not sinless. As Bodhi Balcom says, a baby is a viper in a diaper. Hey, God made them small so they don't kill us, and he made them cute so that we don't kill them. And uh, just, you know, to give you a personal illustration, uh, I never, when my children were younger, I never had to gather the three of them and say, hey, hey, come here, kids. Let me, let me teach you today how to, how to disobey your mom. Hey, that conversation never happened. They just did it. Right? We had to teach them and shepherd them into obedience. But having said that, having said that, a child tends to receive the gospel, receive the truth about heaven and hell, and God and Jesus with a a sincere, innocent faith. They believe with a a genuine, unjaded, naive in a good way, trust, pure trust. So Jesus' lesson about salvation here is teaching, listen, that anyone who does not receive and believe like a child, with that sincere, innocent, genuine, unjaded, pure trust in Jesus and God and what he says about all this, the Lord says, most assuredly, most certainly, you won't enter into heaven at all. I found it very interesting that 
this passage and this event in the Gospel of Mark, it's found smack in the middle of the previous passage, which describes these self-righteous, prideful, untrusting, cunning Pharisees, right, from last Sunday. And the very next passage, we're going to see the the prideful, uber-accomplished, high-achieving, rich young ruler. Children are the polar opposite of both of those. I agree with Hebert here, as he says, quote, speaking of young children, his attitude of receptiveness and willingness, speaking of young children's attitude of receptiveness and willingness to be dependent on others for what they need. Receive, that word receive, stresses that as a definite act, the kingdom must be accepted as a gift. It is not a human achievement. It is never gained by human merit. Just as a child receives a gift from a loved one in guileless trustfulness, so the kingdom of God must be received as God's gift in simple trusting faith. Here is the essence of the doctrine of justification by faith. End quote. So, folks, before we leave this longest point, I have one application and one implication for you. Okay? And the first application is this. Have you received the kingdom of God Okay, the message of the kingdom, the gospel of God's kingdom, the good news of eternal life, like a child received it. Okay, have you received the gospel like a child? Do you believe, like a child, Jesus' word, that there is one and only way for you to be forgiven of your sins and enter into God's kingdom, and that he himself is the one and only way to heaven? Okay, or... Or are there some grown-up thoughts that, that cloud your mind and cause you to doubt that there's only one way to heaven? Are there some grown-up, learned education and worldly thinking that causes you to question Jesus when he says, I'm the only way to get to heaven, and you need to repent and believe in the gospel? Hey, do you trust God like a child does when he says that he sent out of love for the world his one and only son, out of love for you, so that he, the just one, could die in your place and bring you, the unjust one, to God. Jesus himself is crystal clear here as he teaches the twelve and us about salvation. Refusing to trust his word on this, this most important matter, refusing to receive the kingdom and heaven as a gift Relying on your own version of the gospel or your own works or your own spirituality to get you to heaven, certainly you're not going to get there. You're not going to get there. He says heaven must be received like a child receives it. And listen, this is truly good news to those of us who know that there's nothing that we can do to get, get to heaven. It's truly good news to us who know that we couldn't come up with our own way to get ourselves to heaven and acceptable to God. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26, listen, Matthew 11, 25, 26, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And when he says these things, he's talking about matters of eternal life, right? And so those who are wise and intelligent, like Paul says, mighty, noble, wise, aren't going to get it. Too prideful, right? Too worldly, 
too philosophical, too smart for God. But he says, you have revealed this to infants, those who can boast in absolutely nothing. And right after that in Matthew 11 comes Jesus' famous and precious invitation and command, which is, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And his promise is, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And we need to learn from, from Jesus, not from the world, not from academia, not from social media, not from Hollywood, not from anything else. He says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Another beautiful description of our Savior. And he says, you will find rest for your souls. Back to Mark chapter 10. Jesus says in that sober pronouncement, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. Okay, so you notice those words, receive and enter. Right? Think about that for a moment. Receive, enter. I appreciate what James Brooks wrote. He says, note that the kingdom is both to be received and entered. Two ideas that stand side by side throughout the Bible. The blessings of the kingdom are to be received as a gift, yet we enter the kingdom through responsive faith and obedience, end quote. And we know from Ephesians 2, verse 8, that both the repentance and faith is a gift of God, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Neither of those are of yourselves. It is a gift, the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. So we enter heaven only by responding in faith and obedience to that invitation and that command of the gospel, which is repent, turn from your sins, and throw yourself in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Trust and obey the Lord Jesus. And he's not, we're not saying this is a, a childish faith, but we're saying it's a, a childlike faith. Okay, so that's the application, or at least one application. But let me give you an implication, right? And we only have a very short time for this, so I'll try to make it quick. Okay, the implication is this, and uh, the question that, that uh, comes up here is, does this passage teach that all babies and young children go to heaven when they die, or if they die? And I would say that it doesn't teach that directly. Okay? And just hold that thought for a moment. As explained before, Jesus is teaching by analogy that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Right? Heaven, God's heavenly realm, his rule is for those such as these unimportant, unvalued, insignificant ones like children. But for an analogy to work, it needs to be rooted in truth. Okay, so I would like to say that this, this passage implies, that's what I mean by implication, it implies, it implies that all babies and children, young children, go to heaven if they die. And people have spoken about the age of accountability Right? Some say it's 12 years old or, or so, or right around there. But the Bible never talks about any age of accountability. Okay? But it does talk about condition, spiritual condition. There comes a time, and we don't know exactly when it is, there's a condition of accountability where someone, and it's different for all people, all, all kids, all people in general. It could be age of five for some, it could be a teenager for another, it could be an adult. Okay? Uh, it's different for all people. Um, 
Some have been taught more. Some have been more or less. Uh, some have some children have more or less capacity to understand differing degrees of faith. Some are really young. Some actually never reach uh, that level of intellectual ability uh, because of severe mental handicap. So um, I, I just there's there's a point in in people's lives where they do become accountable. Okay, but as far as toddlers, young children, babies, infants, um, the implication here is that that they go to heaven. And I don't have time to just go to the rest of the scriptures, but um, I just want to point to God's merciful character, um, his amazing grace. Uh, how is anyone saved in the first place? Hey, it's, it's unconditional. Hey, it's not anything good that we've done. And so children in their state, in their um, just time of not being uh, able or not having understood or not having been taught or not having put all that together yet, um, I believe that God is merciful. And when we think about just even one story of, uh, in, in the Old Testament of King David's son uh, with Bathsheba, and he's, he's praying and praying and praying and, and mourning and grieving uh, over all this, and then the, the baby son dies, and, and David says, uh, I will... I will see him again. I will go to him, right? And so he, there's a, a by, by way of description in that narrative, um, King David's hope that he will see his baby in heaven someday, right? And so that's, that's an interesting contrast to when his ad- wicked adult son, Absalom, who's trying to overthrow him and kill him, when he dies, right? So when the baby, when the baby dies, King David stops stops mourning and grieving, right? He gets up, and he's it's like, I know where he is. I'm, I'm going to be there. I'll see him again. When Absalom, his wicked son, dies as an adult, David is in inconsolable mourning and grieving and weeping. My son, my son, my son, my son, my son. He says it five times. And uh, the implication there is that he's, he's not going to see him again. And so when we think about ab- abortion... When you think about untold millions of babies who are killed in the womb, when you think about babies of uh, all the different pagan, heathen religions in the world, when you think about young children who haven't heard the gospel, haven't reached the condition of accountability, we think about the children who, who died in Uvalde and these other just tragic deaths uh, in recent past. And uh, I just saw a clip the other day where one of the nine-year-old children, she, she put a TikTok thing up, and um, apparently she was a Christian, and she was trying to convince her, her friends to believe in Jesus. Uh, very beautiful thing there. But I, I believe that those children are in heaven, those babies, and it's just grace. It's just God's merciful character as we see throughout Scripture, and it's his unconditional choosing and sovereignty there. So let us move on to our final point here. Okay. What precious truths we've seen already about our Savior and his character. What priceless lessons we've learned about salvation. Lastly is an application um, point, and it's about service. service. In verse 16, the last verse in Mark 10, it says, He took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. 
And we could just look at the whole passage, but it's illustrated by our Lord in this last verse, uh, just the blessing onto children. Okay, so how can we, and not being Jesus, obviously, uh, how can we seek to bless and serve our children? Okay, the children of our own families, the children of our church family, everyone who comes here to Faith Bible, and others that God puts before us, maybe their grandchildren, maybe their relatives, maybe their friends. There's a myriad of ways, obviously, that we can serve and bless children, but um, I would like to offer two. Okay? I'd like to offer two this morning. One, one is in our heart attitude uh, to be like Jesus, who served and blessed these, these young ones. Um, we need to teach them how to have eternal life. Okay? How to have eternal life. In other words, we need to evangelize them. We need to teach them the gospel. We need to help them understand the truth and beauty of the good news. And I hear periodically of parents who claim to be Christians, and they say about their own children, well, I don't want to force them to to believe. Uh, I don't want to be overly heavy on, on teaching them too much about the Bible. I want them to choose on their own. I want them to make a decision for themselves. And so I'm not going to go too, too hard on that. No, <laughs> we need to, to teach evangelize, pray for, shepherd, instruct again and again and again the truth and beauty of the gospel. Teach them about the holiness of God. Teach them about the sinfulness of man and the sinfulness of themselves. And teach them about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do on behalf of wretched, wicked sinners. And we need to call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to do that. And so we need to evangelize them personally. If you're a parent today and you haven't done that, you need to, you need to do that. You need to, to be faithful to God, faithful to Jesus to do that. It doesn't matter how old uh, your kids are. If they're in your household, you continue to evangelize them and share the gospel with them. And second, expose them to the gospel. Okay, part of this, how to have eternal life. Expose them to the gospel Okay, know that you are not alone, especially if you are of Faith Bible Church. Okay, church is here to come alongside parents. Okay, that's what faithful churches and ministers and, and servants do. We're supposed to come alongside the parents, not take the place of the parents, but to come alongside and support them. And so as a parent, we are to expose them to the gospel by bringing them to church, bringing them to Sunday school, youth group, church ministry events and activities. We should not tire of that. We need to continue to be faithful. Second um, application here is related to that. Okay? So we need to teach them how to have eternal life. But we also need to teach them how to live in this world. How to live in this world. And so if they claim to be Christians, folks, then we need to hold them to account for their young faith. And actually that's true of anybody, even if, uh, if you're a, a, an older adult. If someone claims to be a Christian, claims faith in Jesus Christ, we as loving Christian believers need to hold them to account to that. And so we do that in a gentle and loving manner. But for our children, what do we need to do to teach them how to live in this world as Christians? Well, we need to educate them. Ephesians 6 verse 4 says to fathers, but speaking to parents, okay, to raise your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we need to do it with the word. 
We have to read. We have to study it. We have to know it so that we can tell it. And we need to apply the word. And we need to show them how to apply it. And we need to live it for ourselves. So the, the other part of that, Ephesians 6, verse 4, some translations say nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? So in addition to educating them and teaching them the scriptures, we also need to encourage them. Encourage. We need to evangelize. We need to educate. We need to encourage. Encourage them in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. That means you, parents. That means me, right? Walking with the Lord myself to have a believable testimony of life in Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is good, that Jesus is real, and, and that Jesus is real good, <laughs> okay? So let me ask you, does your life testify to, the, to your claim that you love Jesus? Are, are you living a life that's devoted, sincerely devoted to Jesus Christ? It will show in your actions, and folks, actions speak way louder than words. So we need to do this in the Spirit, encourage them in the Spirit, and by the Spirit, okay, by the Spirit's power. We're promised power by the Holy Spirit. And um, you know what? That happens as we are connected to God through diligent and faithful and fervent prayer. Okay, prayer is the key to all of that. So that's our applications uh, from this. Jesus blessed the little children we should do likewise. Those are suggestions that I submit to you today. There's no greater blessing than for a child to be saved and for them to live their lives wholly for Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody once returned from a, an evangelistic meeting and he reported two and a half conversions. And so his host, his host of this meeting said, oh, two adults and a child, I suppose. No, said Moody. Two children and one adult. The children gave their whole lives, but the adult had only half of his left to give. And that's what he meant by that. As we conclude here and approach the Lord's table, I hope we've been blessed uh, from these often overlooked verses or just, oh, that's nice, Jesus loves the little children, right? I hope we've learned more about our Savior and we've We've learned something, uh, a little bit more about the nature of salvation and also that we can apply this in our service and blessing to children as we think about those in our midst and those in our lives. So um, I'd like us to, to think about that and consider that as we approach the Lord's table and uh, thanking God for his word and just uh, even in a more general sense, if there are any, any things that are burdening you or sins that you're struggling with, it's a, it's a good time. Um, even as we've just heard God's word proclaimed, um, something related or maybe something other, that we can come before him in confession and um, receive uh, the elements um, in a manner that's worthy uh, of Christ our Savior. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for, for your truth and the clarity of your word. Thankful, God, for the character and example of our Lord Jesus as he interacts with children in this text Grateful, God, to, to understand that only those who have a childlike faith and trust in, in you, in your Son, will enter into heaven. Thankful for the precious privilege it is for us to, to serve and bless the young ones in our midst, to love them, to seek their salvation, to play a part in that salvation, to pray for them, to encourage them, to, 
to evangelize them. Thankful God that we can take all of this truth into our observance of the Lord's table. Thankful, thankful that you've given us this ordinance which calls us to bring to mind once again the preciousness of Christ and him crucified for his life, his body, his sacrifice, his blood, his death, his resurrection. I ask you, Lord, that every one of us here this morning that you've brought would be able to take communion in a, in a way that is careful and yet free, in a way that is mourning over sin and yet rejoicing about forgiveness that's found in the blood of Christ and the work of Christ. I pray, God, that as we remember, we would rejoice. And I pray, Lord, as we, we do this, we would experience that, that particular and special time of, of union with you and, and fellowship in a, in a supernatural way, God, with one another as a church body, as Christian believers. So, Lord, as we sing this song, reminding us of your great love, I pray all of it would, would serve to, to bring you honor and glory as we remember Christ in the elements, as we give thanks and praise, as we come before you just prepared and forgiven of our sins because of Christ. We thank you for, for this time now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.